kids. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. So today we're going to talk about Nehemiah. And uh, one of the books in the Bible is called Nehemiah, and that's about Nehemiah. The clue's in the name. Um, and Nehemiah was, uh, yeah, he's a prophet in the Bible. So if we go to our timeline, just so we can have a look at when he was around, based on the other, <laughs> based on the other people that we've been talking about. So uh, we've talked about Daniel, we've talked about Esther, and, and Nehemiah is there after Esther. Um, so he was a, a Jew in exile in Caesar, and... He was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the Persian emperor, who was the son of, Ze- the son of Ze- King Xerxes, who was Esther's husband. So, yeah, he was the cupbearer, which is a very important <laughs> job, uh, not to scale. Um, <laughs> so, a cupbearer is the one that brings the king his cup of wine and tastes it a little bit to make sure that it's not poisoned. So it's obviously a very trustworthy position because, you know, you could be the one that slips in the poison after you've tasted it. <coughs> and a lot of the Jews had actually returned to Jerusalem about 100 years before when God had moved King Cyrus's heart to let them go. So they'd gone back and they'd spent about 20 years fixing up their homes and building a new temple. So one day Nehemiah bumps into Hananiah. Slightly confusing, I know. One of the Jews that had recently come back from Jerusalem. Um, And Nehemiah wants to know how it's all going in Jerusalem. So he asks him. And Hananiah is not particularly positive. He's like, oh, it's going terribly. It's terrible. The walls of Jerusalem are still completely destroyed. They're all broken down. All the gates are burnt. They're lying in the rubble. They're lying where they fell when the city was destroyed 150 years ago. Um, And all the people in Jerusalem live in constant fear of being attacked by the people around them. Now, Nehemiah is is really distressed by this, and he immediately goes and prays about it. So he cries out to God for help. He confesses that as a people, the Jews, they've been totally unfaithful to God in the past, and that's the reason why they're languishing in exile and why Jerusalem is in ruins. But then he reminds God of the promise that God made to Moses, which was this. God said, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your, though your outcasts are in the utmost parts of, the, of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. So that's what Nehemiah prays to God. So the next time he goes to serve the king and queen, the king notices something's up and asks him what's wrong. You're not your usual cheery self, he says. I can tell you're not ill, so it must be sadness of heart. Now for a start, it's just not done to look sad in the presence of the king. It's a bit like Disneyland, where the workers at Disneyland have to look really happy all of the time, even if all of the rides have broken down and there's no ice cream. (coughs) But Nehemiah is really afraid, actually, that he's going to lose his job over this, or even his life. The king could do that. As we've heard in the previous talks about the gruesome ends that some of the people have come to. Um, So Nehemiah, when he's asked this by the king, he sends up an arrow prayer to God, and then he just goes for it. Um, He says, how can I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins? But please, if I've found favour in your sight, 
Send me to Jerusalem that I may rebuild it. Now, much to Nehemiah's surprise and shock and amazement, the king's response isn't off with his head, but how long do you think you'll be away? So Nehemiah asked for more in faith. <coughs> and at the end of the conversation that Nehemiah's had with the king, the king has given him letters of safe passage, permission to take wood from the king's royal forest for the building works, and a military escort. Which is pretty amazing. How you see? I just realised where you said not to scale earlier. Yeah, well done, well done. Wait, did you take No, I didn't. So that's, that's pretty miraculous that the king's given him all of this stuff and a military escort to go back to Jerusalem. So off Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem um, and after being there only three days, he goes out secretly at night to inspect the, the gates with some of the friends and a singular donkey. Why that's mentioned in the Bible, I'm not sure, but there's a singular donkey present. And as reported, the walls are in a terrible state. There's rubble everywhere, the scorch gates are indeed lying on the ground, and at one point it's so bad, the rubble is piled so high that the donkey can't even find a way through. And so after Nehemiah's done this recce, um, he says to all of the people, you see the trouble we're in. <laughs> <laughs> Jerusalem lies in ruins and the gates have been burned with fire. Come on, let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. And Nehemiah tells all of the people about the awesome things that God did and the wood that he bought to start building the wall with. So the people are all fired up. Let's go building, they say. And so they do. <laughs> but there's these three <laughs> officials from... <laughs> There's these three officials from tribes living nearby, and they're called Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. And um, they hear about the project and they ridicule them for it, but Nehemiah pays no notice. Nehemiah tells the people, our God will give us success. So the people in Jerusalem start the building project, and each family is assigned a section of the wall and if you read chapter 3 in Nehemiah, you'll find that there's a really thorough list of all of the bits of the wall that all of the people built. But I've taken pity on you and picked out some highlights. So Eliashab, the high priest, and his fellow priests, they went to work, and they built the sheep gate. And a section rep was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under the supervisors. Boo. Um, and then Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem. He repaired a section with the help of his daughters. And then Shalom, son of Kol Hezar, Shalom was obviously a popular name, um, he also repaired the pool of Shiloh by the king's garden. And uh, the Dung Gate, excellent, excellent one to be assigned here, was repaired by Malkija, son of Rechab. Spare a thought for him. He's got to do the Dung Gate. And they make good progress. And Sambalat, Tobiah and Geshem are not amused by this progress. What are these feeble Jews doing, sneers Sanballat? Are they thinking of finishing it in a day? Yeah, says Tobiah. <laughs> Even a fox could knock this down, using perhaps the Bible's latest insult. <laughs> but Nehemiah and the builders are not pleased. They're not phased. They keep going with all of their hearts, and they build the wall up to half its height. Um, so Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they get pretty angry. Their witty banter has failed to make the builders lose heart. So they plot to attack Jerusalem. <coughs> meanwhile, 
the people in Judah start saying, the strength of the labourers is giving out. And there's so much rubble, we can't build the wall. Then the Jews that, who live outside of Jerusalem, near Sambalat, Tobiah and Geshem, they come ten times over and beg the builders to stop because they're afraid of being attacked by them. So Nehemiah has a two-pronged strategy for, um, to facing down these discouragements both from inside the camp and from outside. <laughs> I literally thought that was natural. <laughs> yeah, so sorry. This yeah, is not part of it. Should be alright. Should be alright. No, the Every time it comes up, I'll just do that for a bit. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so yes, no, my two-pronged strategy. Uh, thing one. Um, first, he stations people in family groups in exposed places, armed with swords, spears, and shields. Uh, and secondly, he encourages the workers. He says to them, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And this really encourages them, and they get back to work. And from that point on, they never go anywhere without their weapons. And they even wear their clothes in bed so that they can leap to attack at a moment's notice. But it's not plain sailing all of the way. Um, there was this time when Nehemiah found out the leaders were taxing the people heavily, lending them money, charging them interest, then seizing their people's property and making them become slaves if they couldn't pay. Having been freed from slavery in Babylon and Persia, they're now enslaving each other. Not a good strategy. So Nehemiah confronts the leaders and they promise to pay back all the money, give back the land they seize, and release the people from slavery. <coughs> There's also the time that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem hire a false prophet to try and trick Nehemiah into leaving the city, but he doesn't fall for it. <coughs> but they do eventually finish the wall. <laughs> And they, <laughs> and they march around the walls, praising God in celebration. They go into the temple and they listen to the entire books of Moses being read to them. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. You thought this talk was long. That lasted seven days. And to round it all off, they, they communally swear to keep all of the law, in fact, all of the aspects of the law. <clears throat> now, what we've been hearing about all of these Old Testament for is actually we've been thinking about how they point forward to Jesus and like, um, they're, they're like foreshadowing Jesus coming in, in the future. <clears throat> and actually, Nehemiah, he does, he does, he's, a, he's like a foretaste of Jesus in a couple of different ways. So, thing one, <clears throat> Daniel, who we heard about in a previous talk, who was around like, I don't know, 100 to 150 years before this, he actually made a prophecy about how long it would be before Jerusalem got rebuilt. And unknowingly, I guess, um, Nehemiah is able to come and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem at exactly the same point that Daniel had prophesied. And in the same way, there were loads of prophecies about Jesus coming to earth, like in Isaiah and various places. Um, so Jesus was a fulfillment of a prophecy as well. Um, and, you know, just like Nehemiah was really distraught to hear about the state of Jerusalem, one of the key reasons that um, 
that Jesus came to earth to die for us was because God didn't want to leave us like in the problems that we were in. He didn't want to leave us unprotected. He didn't want to leave us without a saviour. So that's another kind of analogy as well. <clears throat> um, and just like Nehemiah encourages the people to start building, you know, Jesus encourages us in our lives to start building the works that he's got prepared for us. Um, and just like Nehemiah sorts out protection for the builders, you know, Jesus, he's, you know, God is our hiding place. He's the protector of us as well. Um, and just like Nehemiah challenges their sin, you know, Jesus challenges our sin as well. Um, and just like Nehemiah works alongside them, Jesus works with us through everything that we do. But, you know, Nehemiah wasn't Jesus. <clears throat> And all the spurring on, or Nehemiah setting a good example by not, you know, by not charging all of the people loads of taxes and all of that kind of thing. Um, it didn't, it wasn't enough. So Nehemiah goes back to the king in Susa, just like he's promised that he would do. And several years later, he comes back to find all of his hard work undone. The priests have given their arch enemy, Tobiah, a room in the temple that he can hang out in. The musicians in the temple have abandoned their posts and gone back to their fields to do their ploughing, so no one is bothering to worship God. People aren't honouring the Sabbath. They're using the time to bring in the harvest, overwork their donkeys, and make canny business deals. And the grandson of the high priest has even married the other Badi Sambalat's daughter, literally sleeping with the enemy. <laughs> you're cheering at that. Sorry. Oh, I see you're cheering at the joke. <clears throat> the history of Nehemiah, actually, if you read the book, it ends on quite a downer. Um, he tries really hard to make the Jewish people be obedient to God. He warns them that their behaviour has led to disaster before. He tries shutting the city gates on the Sabbath to stop them working and trading. He calls down curses on them. He makes them take oaths not to sin. He drives them away when they sin. He beats them up. He tries pulling their hair out, but to no avail. After Nehemiah, there was only one more Old Testament prophet, Malachi. Not that Malachi. Another Malachi. <laughs> and after that, there was silence. Nothing. <coughs> no word from God for 400 years. And as for Jerusalem, gets captured by the Greeks, and then the Syrians, and then taken back temporarily by the Jews, and then captured by the Romans, and Jerusalem has never been at peace since. So why? It seemed like God was really with Nehemiah. After all, we said he was foreshadowing Jesus. So why didn't he succeed in his mission? The further you read in the book of Nehemiah, the more and more frustrated Nehemiah seems to get with the people. God did amazing miracles in Nehemiah's life. He moved the king to let Nehemiah go and rebuild Jerusalem, even giving him the supplies to do it, the letters of safe passage and the military escort. So imagine if you were the people living in Jerusalem and Nehemiah turned up with all of this. You might even have thought, that Nehemiah was the Messiah. But God's plan is not always to do things in the way that we think they should be done. 
God is infinitely wise, and he's planned everything from the beginning. God knows that the Jews, that all of us, are inherently rebellious. And all this persuading and threatening, all the rules and outward obedience, it's not going to fix the fact that we're all sinful. What it needs is someone to change hearts, to change us on the inside. And only God can do that. So that's why, after 400 years of silence, we get the ultimate answer, Jesus. The man who's also somehow fully God has come to earth to offer forgiveness for our rebellion and sin. And not only forgiveness, but an offer to change our hearts. <clears throat> because you and I, we are sinful failures. Even if we can be bothered to try to do better, to be better people, we soon slip back into our private habitual sins. Our parents nagging us doesn't help the situation, as you may have noticed. Our gran imploring us to change doesn't change the situation. Um, our teachers, like, keeping a really close eye on us just makes us, like, do it more in secret. <coughs> Maybe it's laziness or being rude to your parents or watching porn or whatever it is, whatever it is for you. You know the sins that you struggle with. And no matter how much we try and make this out that this stuff doesn't matter and that it's not a problem, actually deep down we know it is. In Romans 6.23 it says the wages of sin is death. Our eventual payback for all of the things we've done wrong is separation from God and eternal punishment. This is wretched and there's actually nothing we can do to stop ourselves sinning even when we know that there is punishment coming. And this is basically how the book of Nehemiah ends. The momentary elation at having completed the walls of Jerusalem gives way to his despair at the rottenness that's within it. But obviously the Bible doesn't end there. And nor does the verse from Romans. It says, the wages of sin is death. Can anyone finish? Does anyone know the second half of the verse? The wages of sin is death, but... But the gift of God is eternal life. <clears throat> this is the gospel, the good news, that God didn't, doesn't leave us mouldering as sinful failures, that he sent his son, Jesus, as a gift that anyone who believes in Jesus shouldn't perish, but should receive eternal life. God is offering you life as a gift when you are destined for death. You just need to admit that you need Jesus to save you. So have you done that? Have you actually admitted your guilt that you need that, and your need for a saviour? And if you have, are you letting Jesus change your heart? Don't be like that city of Jerusalem, outwardly secure but inwardly rotten. But the prophet Ezekiel brought this promise from God. He says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
So just before Jesus went back into heaven, he promised that he would send the Holy Spirit on anyone who trusted in him. This is what this verse is talking about. God promises to exchange your sinful heart for a soft heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you trusting God to do this for you? 